You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. everyone for coming. Um, my name is Sheila Whitley. I'm the head of climate and energy here at the Overseas Development Institute. We're really pleased um, to have you join uh, our event on rethinking capitalism for sustainable and inclusive growth. I'm really happy to welcome our speakers today, Michael Jacobs, Professor Clarlotta Perez, and Russell Bishop. Um, I'm going to be introducing them each in more detail afterwards, but I just want to go um, into a very sort of quick introduction uh, to this this event and to talk to you a little bit about how this links to some of our work at ODI. Um, we're really fortunate to have these speakers here to talk about a book that was published earlier this year. This work links to a lot of the work of, of the Overseas Development Institute in terms of international economic development and growth, uh, inequality, social protection, and the work that our team and others do on, on sustainability. Um, and I think uh, this book and the work of these um, the thinkers who are here with us today is really important for, for two reasons in particular. I'm sure a lot of you are here um, maybe for the first reason, which is the prescience of this research and the importance in terms of the political shifts that are happening um, here in the UK uh, and in other Western countries that have happened sort of, I guess, starting from the, the beginning of last year. Um, ahead of many others in their field, um, the, the authors of this book have been challenging orthodox ideas about economic policymaking and theory. Um, and then in, instead of treating issues such, such as sustainability and inequality as externalities or market failures, they are treating these issues as integral to how you do economic policymaking, which is very critical in these times. Um, and I guess secondly and selfishly, um, this book really links to some of the work that our climate and energy team have been doing on um, fossil fuel subsidies in particular. The book uh, looks at, and, and a number of the pieces in the book look at the relationship between the state and the private sector, and is really clear about the different tools that the state has to use in terms of shaping uh, economic development, and how those tools can be used differently. We often hear in the, con in the con context of climate change that there's not enough money or resources to address the problem. And what we see in our work on fossil fuel subsidies is that there's significant resources, but they're going um, in the direction of high carbon energy development rather than low carbon energy development. Uh, so I, I, I think as a community and as part of listening to um, the presentations today and having a discussion um, um, with the authors, we can think more about how governments can use uh, economic policy making differently to shape uh, a future that's inclusive and sustainable. Um, so just in terms of uh, the mechanics of the event, um, we're going to have uh, presentations, which I think are too short, but we'll um, hope to, um, to have a lot of time for discussion. So 15 minutes each from Michael and Carlotta, and then Russell will um, discuss and feedback on what he's heard in the presentation and in particular link it to some work uh, he's been doing, look at the implications for developing countries. And then we should have 40 minutes for questions and answers. We have an uh, audience online, as I said previously, so we'll try to take um, questions from all of you in the room and then also from the online audience. Um, if you're on Twitter, you can follow the event at, at ODIDev. And then also there's a hashtag, Rethinking Capitalism, if you want to uh, comment about the event as it goes on. 
So I'll start by introducing Michael. It's really nice to have Michael back. He was sitting in the ODI offices um, for a while working on the new climate economy with us. Um, Michael Jacobs is the director of the Commission on Economic Justice at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Uh, he's also a visiting professor at UCL, and he was for six years a special advisor uh, to Prime Minister, British Prime Minister uh, Gordon Brown. And before that, he was the head of think tank and policy association, uh, the Fabian Society. He is the author of a number of books on environmental economics and progressive politics, including the book that he and Carlotta are going to present today, uh, Rethinking Capitalism, Economics and Policy for Sustainable and Inclusive Growth. Thank you again, Michael, and we look forward to hearing your presentation. Thank you very much, uh, Carlotta. Shall I stand or am I seated all right? Seated is okay. Um, so I think we're getting these things, and if I press this thing, look, we get, they get to move on, but I need my glasses to look at those because I'm looking at that one over there. So the book uh, that Sheila has been referring to is this called Rethinking Capitalism, edited by myself and Mariana Mazzucato, the Professor of Economics and Innovation at Spru in Sussex, although about to move to UCL. Um, it's a collection of essays um, by a number of leading economists, the most leading of which is sitting uh, to the right of me, um, uh, about why... Uh, Conventional uh, or orthodox economics uh, finds it very difficult to understand modern capitalism and how, if you rethought your economic theory, you might generate some more successful policies. Um, and by successful, meaning ones that would uh, help stimulate a more inclusive, a more sustainable, uh, and also a more innovative uh, form of economic growth. It's a book about the industrialized economies. Um, this is a big enough subject without dealing with the very particular uh, issues relating to developing economies. So uh, this is built very much about industrialized economies, but obviously in a globalized economy, this has uh, implications for the rest of the world. And Carlotta will talk a little bit, uh, I think, about uh, those things. The starting place for the book, um, which in our introductory essay that Mariana Matsukata and I have written, uh, which kind of tries to pull the whole thing together. Um, we use the starting place as the Queen's uh, now rather famous visit to the London School of Economics uh, in 2008, uh, famous at least to those who've heard of it, um, in which she uh, very pointedly asked the assembled economists at the LSE um, at a moment when the financial crash was uh, had uh, Lehman Brothers had collapsed. It was clear that something very, very significant was occurring in the economy. She asked the assembled economists, um, why was it that nobody had spotted this coming? Um, and the Queen's question uh, went to the heart in many ways of two huge failures. Um, one was the failure of the economy. The Western economies, and uh, by extension, most of the rest of the world, very nearly collapsed uh, at that point, had it not been for the bailout of the banks, which... Uh, the British, the American, and then most other Western economies did, uh, we would have run out of credit. And this was a, an incredibly serious moment in, uh, in uh, our economic history, which has had huge ramifications for the real economy, which have not yet ended. Um, the second failure was the failure of economics. Um, why was it that so few economists... Now, for those uh, people studying labour markets or whatever, you could forgive them for not predicting the financial crash. That wasn't their job. But even those who were paid to understand the macroeconomy and the financial sector, why was it that so few had predicted the crash? Not, not none. There were economists who did so. Um, but this was not, by and large, the mainstream view. On the contrary, the rather remarkable thing about that moment was the mainstream view in macroeconomics was that macroeconomics had more or less so solved the basic problem of the business cycle, which had long plagued 
uh, in the post-war period, long-plagued uh, economists, through a combination of inflation targeting, open uh, independent uh, central banks, open uh, minutes of meetings and so on. So this was a very significant uh, uh, moment, and the Queen's uh, uh, pointed question kind of exposed it. Had we known what was about to happen, we would have said the starting place for the book was the votes for Brexit and Trump last year. Because much more than the, the, the financial crisis, it's been the political implications um, of, the, of the, the problems of capitalism which have been exposed over the last year. Rather surprisingly, and again here, the, the, the uh, people who failed to predict it were the pollsters. So the political analysts paid to uh, try and understand the political system um, did not understand uh, what was going on in uh, both the UK uh, and the US. Um, and uh, we are not the first people to point out that um, it looks like, and the reasons for voting in referendums and election campaigns are, are, are many, we should be careful not to oversimplify, but it does look like one of the reasons that animated a lot of the voters uh, who voted for Brexit and for Trump, particularly in working class former industrial areas, uh, was a sense that the economy wasn't working anymore. Uh, and they were right. Um, and even though uh, they, this, these phenomena weren't predicted, in some ways they should have been. What I want to try and do in my very, very short time here is to explain why we say that capitalism is going through a very serious crisis, much more serious than economic commentary in the daily news would uh, uh, suggest, um, and why orthodox economics finds it so difficult to understand that crisis and to propose solutions for it. So I want to take you through a, a very small number of the, um, uh, of the graphs and, uh, that we have in the book uh, and some others, just on the nature of the crisis. There are essentially three uh, elements to this which we kind of bring together. There, there are, you could make it more than three, but three. So one is um, we now have a much more unstable economy that has been unable to generate in anything like normal policy conditions uh, the kind of growth that we've been used to. This is a picture of the number of, of financial crises that have occurred, uh, uh, the number of countries that have had financial crises in the period effectively before and after 1975. And this just shows just how um, unstable capitalism has become. Now, one of the reasons for this, the number of countries has gone up because more countries have entered capitalist eras and have stock markets of their own and so on. So part of this is just the phenomenon of globalization. But it also does show that, um, that crises uh, of a financial and banking kind are much more common than they used to be. Capitalism appears to be much more unstable than it was. And this is partly a function of the increasing importance over this period of the financial sector. Um, not just the size of the financial sector, but the way in which companies uh, have become more and more financialized. Um, we, and I'll come to that in a second, the underlying phenomenon, which is now pretty much universal across Western economies, has been the decline in the rate of investment. So Western economies are investing less and less. The British economy has always invested less than our com com major competitors, but the rate of investment has declined. And of course, investment is the engine of growth. So this is a, 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 a particularly uh, worrying phenomenon. And it is related to the financialization, not just uh, of the economy, not just in the sense that the financial sector has grown bigger, but the way in which companies are behaving. Uh, over the last uh, 20 or so years, a really rather remarkable phenomenon has begun to take shape. And this this uh, graph, you don't need to look at it in, in great detail, which is the phenomenon of the uh, excessive distribution of 
uh, of profits back to shareholders, not just through dividends, which is the normal method, but through share buybacks, where companies buy back their own shares um, in order to return money to their shareholders um, and, incidentally, to enrich their senior executives who are often paid in the stock market price of the shares, which, of course, rises when there's uh, scarcity because they've been bought back. Major corporations who you would have thought were going to be the engines of investment and innovation and growth are returning more money to their shareholders than they're earning in a particular year, which effectively means that they have ceased to become um, engines of investment. They've been engines of the return of cash to capital and shareholders. And this has two huge effects. One is that it means much less investment is going on in the economy. It, uh, investment is declining, which is what we saw. Secondly, the returns to capital are increasing. And this is the uh, second of the two major phenomena uh, that we can see in modern capitalism, which is that the distribution of income has been uh, being skewed in a very uh, uh, particular way. In neoclassical economics, you would expect that wages would effectively shadow or align with productivity. Productivity is the rate of, of output uh, over inputs, over labor uh, inputs, and you would expect that wages should more or less go with productivity, which they used to do. And over the last period, since about 1980, there has been this big disconnect, decoupling of wages and productivity. So the economy is becoming more productive, but the returns are not going to labor. They are going to capital. And the result of this is an extraordinarily unequal income distribution. Um, this is uh, quintiles of the income distribution in the US. Now, you may notice that there are six of them, which means that they can't be quintiles. The last one on the right is the top 1%. <coughs> so this is where after-tax income has gone in the United States over the period since 1979-80. An extraordinary proportion of the gains from growth having gone to the top 1% not even the top 10%, um, and very little going uh, to the bottom. This is uh, the, the same, uh, basically the same uh, picture. Uh, the line along the bottom is the 99%, the bottom 99%, that's pretty much everybody, and the line along the top is the top 1%. This is the way in which incomes have diverged uh, over this period. In the UK, we have a similar kind of phenomenon, not quite as stark. This is pre-tax and benefits. So this is the way the economy distributes its rewards before taxes and benefits. And taxes and benefits do do a little bit to ameliorate this. But you can see that the bottom third of the income distribution has barely shared in growth from 1979 at all. There's been almost no income growth there at all. And the vast majority has gone to the top third uh, and mostly to the top uh, 10%. Um, and the phenomenon here in, it can also be measured in real wages. Real wages have more or less been stagnant uh, in this period. And in the UK, they have declined. Uh, this is av the average real wage index. And it's not just the UK and the US, although the UK and the US had this uh, in its starkest form. So we have two phenomena here of what modern capitalism is doing. The first thing is it's unstable and it's becoming more financialized and investment is falling. Secondly, such that there is growth, it is being distributed very, very unequally, going almost all to the top, um, uh, the very top of the income distribution. The third phenomenon is unsustainability. Um, uh, m most familiar to us all in the extent of greenhouse gas emissions, this is uh, uh, um, a classic IPCC graph. We need to be somewhere in the blue trajectory in order to hold global 
temperature, average temperature to around uh, two degrees. We are in the grey territory, uh, the, the middle territory with some boundaries of, of probabilities. We have to do something uh, uh, extraordinarily transformative to enable us to hold global warming to anything like a, uh, a tolerable uh, condition, which is to get rid of carbon from uh, the global economy altogether. Uh, the global economy is still 80% uh, dependent on, uh, on fossil fuels. Getting rid of carbon by the early part of the second half of this century uh, is, an, is an extraordinary transformatory process. But it's not the only one that we have to do. Um, uh, carbon is the most familiar to us of the environmental limits that uh, we're reaching, but there are a number of others. And the planetary boundaries work of the Stockholm Resilience Centre uh, gives us an indication of the, the range of environmental impacts that we're having that are in danger zones. They're not all uh, uh, as dangerous as carbon, um, but some of them are getting to that. And you will have seen reports over the last few days of the rate of extinctions uh, currently going on and currently being predicted. Um, this is a... Uh, the, the environmental unsustainability of modern capitalism is reaching uh, critical uh, 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 limits in a whole range of dimensions. Our analysis here is that global capitalism, particularly in its Western form, has some really serious problems. And these are um, of, a, uh, uh, of a very deep kind, which are not going to be solved simply by the kinds of policies that uh, policymakers typically uh, uh, apply to them. We've tried over the last uh, 10 years since the financial crisis already some really radical policy options, but within a kind of conventional paradigm. So interest rates have been stuck at 0.5% uh, or, or around that, more or less uh, zero, since 2007. The longest period of interest rates, anything like that, they've never been that low at all, but the longest period that we've had um, uh, interest rates at that kind of uh, period, they've not been sufficient to stimulate growth. So we've also had quantitative easing. We've had eight years of quantitative easing in which money uh, is pumped into the economy by central banks, which has also not generated uh, uh, any form of normal growth. And we've now got these two phenomena operating for nearly 10 years, and growth is still anemic. And indeed, now many economists are talking about secular stagnation, which is the idea that, we, that you will not get steady growth at positive interest rates at all, which is not a normal phenomenon. And economics doesn't really uh, understand this, which is why central banks are, are scratching their heads about, about what to do. The book runs through these phenomena, these sort of deep structural problems of modern capitalism, and through a, a number of uh, chapters written by a number of uh, quite eminent economists, runs through the problems of orthodox or conventional economics, which have meant that we haven't properly understood exactly what's happening, and even more, we've not been able to generate policy solutions that appear adequate uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the problems. We run through issues of fiscal policy, showing, for example, why austerity, fiscal austerity, was exactly the wrong kind of policy for a problem of, uh, of demand. Um, monetary policy, why, uh, if you understand mon money as endogenous to the system, you get a different form of, uh, of, of monetary policy and so on. Running through a whole series of chapters on the nature of, um, of the firm and innovation uh, and the possibility of industrial policy, including one by Mariana Mazzucato herself. Joseph Stiglitz writing about inequality um, uh, and why inequality is not the price you pay for growth, but on the contrary, inequality is, a, is, a, uh, is an inhibition of growth. Um, Colin Crouch writing about 
about privatization and why the privatization of public services and and uh, and utilities uh, and so on generates uh, a mere a, a more concentrated form uh, of capitalism rather than the kind of uh, enterprise and competition that was expected um, a very interesting piece by Dimitri Zengelis on on why the embeddedness of carbon within the economy needs a uh, a very different uh, form of approach to, to carbon economics, which cannot rely on the idea of pricing carbon, and a wonderful chapter by Carlotta, which she'll talk about in a second, uh, about long waves in industrial and economic uh, development and the kind of long wave we might be entering. So this is quite a rich palette of, uh, of, uh, uh, of material in the book, and you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to summarise the whole thing. Rather, what I'm going to just try and do in my final few minutes is try and give you some flavour of the kind of overall argument that Mariana and I made in our introduction, um, and uh, that in a way runs through all the chapters. The chapters were not written with a common thesis in mind. We brought together authors who uh, we thought thought similar things, but we didn't ask them to relate to one another. But in fact, there are very strong common themes. And the first of these is that the neoclassical or orthodox um, forms of economics with which most of us are familiar, those of you who studied microeconomics will may know of them as Walrasian, in which markets are seen as um, uh, as e essentially the arenas in which competitive firms in competition um, compete for profit, use the price system, you've got consumers acting rationally, um, and markets tend towards equilibrium. This kind of model, familiar to us from microeconomics, from our early economic study, simply doesn't capture the uh, embedded institutional forms in which modern capitalism ta takes place. And as long as we're still using it in economics, we're not really understanding the way the system works. Our markets don't tend towards equilibrium. Firms are not simply representative agents who act in the same way, faced by the same kinds of pressures. The ways in which firms are, uh, are structured, are governed, their, uh, their cultures, their governance models uh, make a huge difference um, to the kinds of economic uh, outcomes which you get. We argue that markets are much, best much better understood as the outcome of heterogeneous and non-stable um, economic transactions than they are uh, in the neoclassical uh, way. Uh, evolutionary economics gives us a lot of useful uh, handles on this. There's a lot of interesting work been done there. But we really need a much more sophisticated understanding of markets. The second, what we call insight, which governs our thinking on this, is the importance of innovation. Innovation is really what drives uh, growth and, uh, um, uh, in an economy, both technological and organizational. Um, and we really need to understand innovation uh, better. Um, and as Mariana Matsukata has now become famous for pointing out, public spending, public grant giving, public investment has been critical to the last 50 years of uh, innovation, particularly in the general purpose technologies which have begun to transform um, uh, the way in which uh, uh, our economies work. So the internet, uh, information te uh, communications technologies, biotechnology, now increasingly nanotechnology, and so on. And she famously points out that most of the uh, technologies in the iPhone, the things that make an iPhone an iPhone, were at some point funded in their development cycle by the US government. Um, in one form or another. And she points out that the model of innovation, which comes out of a kind of orthodox approach in which firms driven by their competitive competitiveness and profit-seeking um, uh, goals um, generate innovation on their own, um, is simply wrong. Actually, uh, capital markets are not very good at funding long-term investment of that kind, and it's been the patient capital provided by public 
um, bodies, which has actually driven much of the technological innovation, and we need to understand innovation in a different way. And the argument that we try and bring out is that markets um, here, government, the role of governments isn't just to correct market failures, as if there was a, a correct way for markets to be, and a failure was a, was a thing which a government could correct, but mar markets can be shaped uh, and transformed by the actions of governments. Um, and in an, particularly in a moment of very low demand, which is what we have now when investment is declining and firms are preferring to buy back their own shares than to invest in innovation, uh, you need uh, demand being created by governments. And the third big insight we want to say is that value, wealth, is produced in an economy not by the private sector, um, but by public and private sectors working together, and indeed by the strength of civil society organisations uh, as a whole. And the idea that it's the private sector that generates wealth and the public sector merely consumes part of that wealth in public services is simply a misunderstanding of the very embedded nature of private institutions within a society and public uh, and the public realm, and we need to understand that much uh, better. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and what is often thought of to be, using Keynes's phrase, the animal spirits of capitalists actually need to be drawn out of them, the animal spirits being their, uh, their uh, uh, risk-taking and their willingness to invest and so on, need to be brought out of them uh, by public behaviour. And this has a very important implication for taxation, which then becomes not a way of extracting value from the wealth-creating private sector, but a way for the private sector to pay for the role of the public sector and society in generating that, uh, that, con that cultural and, in and institutional embeddedness uh, in which they can work. And the last point is that inequality inhibits growth. This is now an increasing finding which has been uh, widely now documented by the OECD, uh, by the IMF, not officially, but in some of its research papers, um, in which inequality is no longer, uh, can no longer be seen as something which is kind of the price of growth, but is something which uh, inhibits it. And of course, related to this, um, we have the, the, uh, the recognition now that biophysical limits are absolute constraints um, on the nature of the economy and must be respected. So we have some fundamentally different ways of thinking about economics that we've tried to uh, develop. Um, these draw on a rich seam of uh, theory. Polanyi, Schumpeter, Keynes, the evolutionary economists, the post-Keynesians, institutionalists. It's not as if we've reinvented a brand new economics here. But this economics needs to come together in some kind of alternative now if we're to understand uh, capitalism better and if we're to produce better policy. And we need to um, both create better goals for policy, more inclusive, more sustainable, more innovative, and find new ways of measuring um, uh, uh, those things as well as new policies. So the argument here is that we're at a moment of very significant change. There have been two previous moments like this. The 1930s and 40s was another moment of huge crisis in the global economy and in economics. And the crises of the 1929 crash leading through the 1930s unemployment uh, eventually led to a radical shift in both policy and economic thought. The post-war Keynesian um, uh, revolution generated new kinds of economic policies with new goals and a new theoretical model uh, to, uh, to apply. And the same thing happened after 19, the 1970s. When we had a similar crisis with the oil shocks in the 1970s, the breakdown of the Bretton Woods uh, system, uh, the breakdown of the Phillips curve, for those of you who are familiar with the economics, another moment when economics and policymaking couldn't deal with the problems that we'd had before. Um, and we ushered in a new era uh, of Thatcherite, free market, neoliberal, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, economics, which has dominated until 
relatively recently. Our argument is that we are now in another moment of crisis. It's not clear that the political outcomes from this uh, are going to lead us towards the right kind of solutions, and that's the interesting political moment that we are now in. But we do think we need a new kind of economics to do so, and we hope this book uh, helps set some of that out. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, you were speaking about these... Um, <laughs> Um, these periods, these important periods of change and economic history, and I think that's what Carlotta is going to focus on, on next. Um, but I'm really interested in the discussion to talk more about how governments can sort of get the space to think differently and act differently in terms of their interactions, the interactions between the public and the private sector, moving away from solely using monetary policy to using fiscal policy more um, actively and to try to understand, because I think uh, what it seems is though there's also a narrative which we all buy into, so how does that narrative change? And it feels like the narrative is changing in a, in a direction that perhaps is, is not, as, um, not as positive in terms of these questions of sustainability and inclusivity as we would like. Um, so just very quickly uh, to introduce um, Professor Carlotta Perez. Carlotta Perez is a visiting professor of international development at the LSE. Uh, she is also a professor of technology and socioeconomic development at the Ragnar Nurse School of Innovation and Governance at the Tallinn University of Technology, and is the honorary professor at SPRU, the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex. Uh, in her 2002 book, um, Professor Perez, I'm sorry, her 2002 book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, The Dynamics of Bubbles in the Golden Ages, um, Professor Perez put forward a theory of the emergence and diffusion of technological revolutions and the role of finance in the process. Um, she's currently working on the sequel to this book, uh, Beyond the Technological Revolution, which will analyze the role that governments and business and civil society have all played in the deployment of, um, and potential of each of these technological revolutions. Um, Carlotta, we're delighted to have you here, and we really look forward to your perspectives, um, particularly on the topic of green growth, which a lot of us at ODI are studying. Thank you, Sheila. Well, smart green growth and full global development, uh, that is what I'm proposing as directions for unleashing a global golden age. Yes, a global golden age, uh, learning from history and technology. So uh, I will begin by sharing with you this whole idea about learning from history and technology. It's a new Schumpeterian approach and I hope you will find it useful for understanding the moment we're living now. Uh, there have been five technological revolutions in the last 240 years. The first was the so-called Industrial Revolution in England, which was about machines, factories, canals. Then we have the Age of Steam, and coal, iron, and railways. That was the second, the Victorian times. Then from 75, we have the age of steel and heavy engineering. Uh, that was uh, really the first globalization. At that time, we had uh, telegraph cables that went across the ocean. We had transcontinental railways. We had steamships that could turn the southern hemisphere into provider of food, meat, and wheat, and so on, to the northern hemisphere. So we really had the first time when it was possible, because of communications, both of information and of goods, uh, across the whole world, that we had the first globalization. Then we have our age of the automobile, 
oil, petrochemicals, and mass production, which is the one we know best. Some of us know very well. Some of the young people never lived through it, but we're still inheriting a lot of the legacy of that wasteful mass production, materials using, etc. consumerism, consumerist society. Although that was what was seen as the good life then, we might need to change our notion of the good life now. And then we have our current age of information, technology, and telecommunications. And please notice that it's only halfway through according to the theory I'm trying to explain. We've only gone through the first half. So the second half is the one that I think can turn, we can turn it into a golden age. So each one of these leads to a techno-economic and socio-institutional shift. Up to now, we've had much of the techno-economic, but not enough. And we are far from having the socio-institutional shift that's needed. And what it does is to bring new directions for innovation and a quantum leap in productivity. And that quantum leap has happened only in some industries, and we still have much more to go but we also have many industries that could be born. So um, the thing is that it doesn't happen smoothly. A technological revolution is a very, very deep change. So we, what we get is a real bumpy ride. And that bumpy ride has a pattern, a pattern that can be recognized, a pattern of propagation, which has two huge different periods. One is the installation period, mainly financial and very Schumpeterian creative destruction. And then we have the deployment period and in between what I've called the turning point, which is what moves us from the installation to the deployment period. So the installation period ends in a bubble prosperity, which of course crashes. And then we have a recession. And then after that, if the state manages to do the right thing, we have a golden age. So the first one was Canal Mania, the bubble. Then we had just a few years, and then we get the Great British Leap. That was in the middle of the, of the Napoleonic Wars. Then we had the Railway Mania, which again, huge crash, a very short interval turning point. And then we had the Victorian boom after the Great Exhibition. Then the next one, the first globalization, we had London-funded infrastructure buildup in all of the Southern Hemisphere and also helping the US and Canada, which were then developing countries. But you know, the US and Germany were more or less like China today. They were forging ahead and really making a huge difference. So what we get after that, we get, we get several uh, crashes all over the world, practically all over the Southern Hemisphere, the Bering Crisis and Australia, New Zealand, everywhere, and in the US. Then after that, we get the Belle Epoque. We get the Belle Epoque in Europe and what was called the Progressive Era in the US. And finally, we come to the Roaring Twenties, the big 1920s for the mass production revolution, which then crashes in 29. And then we have this long, the longest turning point, which lasted for the whole of the 30s. And then we get the post-war boom, the welfare state, the golden age. 
After that, our current internet mania, telecoms, etc. Two bubbles, one in 2000 and the other one in 2008. Nothing guarantees that there won't be another bubble. Conditions are actually quite ripe for a possible third bubble, unfortunately. So we are now precisely in that moment. We are now right there at the turning point of this one. So this is the equivalent of the 1930s. And we could, just as before, overcome the 1930s, overcome these years with a sustainable, this time global, not national, golden age. This is what I think is possible, not probable. It's only possible if we do the right thing. Because the fact is that installation is about creative destruction. And it's, it happens in unfettered markets led by finance. There is always a huge push for the state to get out of the way and let this huge experiment with the new technologies happen led by finance. But after the crash, it depends on how the state behaves. Then you can have deployment, which is about convergent innovation in products, methods, and lifestyles with a proactive state favoring investment in production. Now, that's why I call it a turning point, because we go from a financialized period to a proactive state helping production, creating jobs, creating wealth, and making a huge difference from what it is that we have now had. So, the shift needs state action. We need to favor investment in production. Because the whole innovation in products, in methods, in lifestyles has to happen. Now, it's important to note that increasing inequality is one of the features that distinguishes installation from deployment. It has happened each time. If we look at the Piketty and Sias data, well, we already saw a few of these, but this is a particular way of looking at it. If you see, we have on the one hand the 1920s and 30s, high, this is about the top 1% of taxpayers, 25% to the 1%, and now we have it again. So we've had it in both installation periods. It's not by chance, it's because it is the installation period, it's because it is finance that led the whole thing. And then look at the post-war boom. You can see that it goes down to 10%, and it, of course it goes down to 10% of, of a much greater pie, because the whole thing is that Thanks to state action, you have greater growth, you have greater uh, wealth creation, and therefore, but then the other 90% goes to the rest. So that means that, in fact, if we look at what we're talking about, installation and deployment turning point, the deployment is what we want, and turning point is where we are, so we have the possibility of doing what has been done before. Now, that means that when positive-sum game policies with a clear direction are applied at the turning point, growth resumes, jobs multiply, and inequality decreases. Now, why at the turning point? <coughs> 
it's not just because at any point good state action is going to bring a fantastic thing. No, it's because at the turning point in particular, we had all the capabilities, all the installation of technology, of technological potential that has been created in all these creative destruction <coughs> years, in all these difficult years. It's all there, like it was in the 30s. And in the 30s, it was not being used, but during the war and after the war, it certainly was used. So we're talking about the fact that at the turning point, there is a huge potential to spread across the economy by having a proper direction. So let's look at the nature of the turning point. What is the turning point? What is the period we're living now? Well, once the bubble collapses, the underlying state of the economy is revealed. Because during the bubble, there is this, you know, it looks nice. In fact, it was called the great moderation by some economists. Goodness me. So what do we find now from that great moderation? We discover that finance has become a casino decoupled from production, that all investment looks uncertain, and therefore, Nobody wants to invest except, of course, the, those guys who don't pay taxes, the huge Googles and Apples and all these guys who don't know what to do with their money except put it in some tax havens and do some crazy things like go to the moon rather than solve social problems with technologies that would be for that. We have no clear market signals. We have deflation and unemployment, and stubborn unemployment, and the way we measure it is really ridiculous. People who are not looking for employment are not counted. Anyway, that's how it goes. Uh, income is polarized. Inequality is stubborn. Social unrest. Xenophobia, like against the Jews in the 1930s. Inequality is, uh, sorry, messianic leaders, like Hitler was elected, and various others are and could be elected now. I mean, it's this anger because of all this situation that creates this political atmosphere, this anger, the anger, and the anger is there for a reason. We have economic migrations for similar reasons. We have talk of secular stagnation. Do you know that Alvin Hansen used that expression in the 1930s precisely, and now we're saying it again. Structural, unemploy uh, structural unemployment was another one of the phrases that was used then. And even after the war, people were still talking about, well, what are we going to do with all these veterans coming back? You know, we, how are we going to employ them? So all sorts of policies were invented in order to get them to go to, go to university or do something so that you would solve the problem of unemployment because mass production wasn't going to absorb all the, all the jobs, you know, all the unemployed people that were coming back. And we have recessions, recessions, or feeble growth, even depression sometimes. And yet, there is a huge technological potential installed by the bubbles, as I was telling you before. And what it lacks is a stable, synergistic direction. That's what the state has to be, has to give. So which have been the directions before? Well, for the first revolution, it was war procurement. It was the Napoleonic Wars. So after the crash and all that, what you actually had after the canal panic and all that 
We had the Napoleonic Wars, which had a lot of demand for food for various things and created conditions. Then the second, the Victorian boom, we had urbanization. That's when really the um, growth of cities together with the growth of industry made this huge difference in, in the quality of life for a lot of people, others not, of course. And it was also the workshop of the world. It was the creations, the creation of conditions for the possibility of exporting all over the world. From Britain, this is mainly UK. These first two were mainly UK. Then we go to the third. What happens then is that the globalization infrastructure creates a whole world, but across the world. So you had the possibility of having railways and ports all over the world in order to create this, this two-way trade, which created jobs in the north and in the south. And then we had in the fourth suburbanization and the Cold War plus the welfare state. The whole idea of having cheap land, cheap houses, for workers to be able to buy houses. You know, in the 1930s, can you imagine all these people in queue, so hungry and all that, to say, you know, those guys, they're going to be earning middle-class incomes so that they will be able to have houses, car at the door, go to the mall, buy in the supermarket. Unbelievable. It was possible precisely because there was this huge wealth-creating potential that was in mass production, where the more you produced, the cheaper it got. Therefore, you needed to have big dynamic markets. So what each of these things did was provide a synergistic path for innovation, each of them, and sufficient dynamic markets for profitability. So we need to think each time at the turning point, how can we provide synergistic paths for innovation? Synergistic in the sense that lots of people will invest in the same direction, so you get suppliers, you get skills, you get everything you need for everybody to be able to have profitable investment in that particular direction. And then sufficient dynamic markets so that you can trust that there'll be a scale for profitability in whatever you do along that direction. So what could be the directions now? Well, I suggest, as in the title, smart green growth and full global development. What do we understand by green growth? Well, it's a constant increase in the proportion of intangibles in GDP and lifestyles. Just as for mass production, it was a constant increase of the proportion of tangibles in GDP and lifestyles. Not only did you have to increase how many things you bought, but you had to buy them again and again and again because they were not durable. Now we've got to make them really durable so, you, so the thing can be used again and again and again, even by different people, maybe through a rental system. So we have to change that whole thing. So this increase in GDP and in lifestyles of the intangibles of services would be, of course, while improving the life of the great majorities. Because the whole idea would be now, and the great majorities, not just nationally, but actually globally. We do have the capacity with the current technologies to make life better for much more than just the advanced world. Really across the whole world, it should be possible. 
if we have the right policies. So what do, you, what do we mean by green growth and concrete? We mean favoring services rather than, product, than products, which is in the nature of ICT, as, I just, as I've just said. Favoring renewables ra rather than fossil fuel energy, obviously. Drastic reduction of waste, massive increase in reuse and recycling. Making durable products truly durable and shifting to a rental model, which can be done uh, through seriously reintroducing maintenance with 3D printing of parts and so on, and products can have a chip that tells about their history so we can buy them like we buy used books in Amazon, I mean rent. Uh, we would have an accent on preventive health, exercise, creativity, and experiences, and so on. So, you know, it sounds like very, you know, it's a big shift. But the thing is that it's, ex not, it's not extraordinary. It has happened each time, and it has happened precisely during and after the turning point. The Victorian boom, urbanization, a new urban way of living that happened precisely after the railway crash, the railway panic, began the whole Victorian living was about that. Then we had the Belle Epoque, which was much more, you know, much less austere and all this. It created a whole way of living too. And then we have the American way of life. My question is, couldn't we have a European way of life, which is sustainable and all these things, and we could spread it across the world, just as the American way of life was spread across the world? I think we might. But the other thing, which is equally important, perhaps in a different way, is full global development. And my argument is that it would be wonderful for the advanced world if we could get full global development in this same sense of direction. And the reason is, first of all, that it would provide demand for advanced country specialization in customized, sustainable, and appropriate capital goods. Obviously, the developing world cannot produce produce its capital goods. Maybe China would produce some, maybe India, some countries perhaps. But basically, the adapted, the specialization in all this could be one of the ways of re-employing uh, the, the, uh, develop, the developed country workers that have been, uh, that have lost their jobs because of uh, globalization. It would multiply trade flows less concentrated in China and Asia. It would reduce poverty, violence, obviously, and therefore it would reduce migrations too, and so on. Maybe we need a Marshall Plan. Maybe we need to fund it by taxing financial transactions across the world, including when they send their money to the tax havens. We need to tax global corporations. They are global, so they pay so that we have global development. That would make a lot of sense, and so on. So. Lifestyle change is crucial. Why is lifestyle change so crucial? Because in golden ages, jobs proliferate around the needs of the new lifestyles. If we look at the US in the post-war boom, most jobs did not come from the high productivity manufacturing, which is shedding labor. Agriculture was also shedding labor. It came from trade, services, government, finance, all the things that were at the time services for this new population that was becoming middle class. 
So if we look at, you can see, manufacturing from, in the golden age, which begins where it says post-war boom, manufacturing increased its production by 2.5 times. It multiplied production 2.5 times, but its employment grew only 30%, not even 30%. Now, if you look at the others, trade, all the retail things and all that, government, and all the services in, from restaurants to whatever, plus real estate, insurance, finance, etc. That's where the real employment growth took place five times. So if you look at prosperity in the golden age, using the US, which is the typical example, we can see that it was okay to have this high productivity industry happening because it allowed, all this wealth allowed low productivity activities, but with decent wages. So this combination is, have, is what we really have to aim for, to be able to do it. Because the high-tech sectors in each deployment provide the best jobs, but not necessarily the most jobs. So, the question. Are there reasons for optimism? Well, it's a political issue. However, I think yes. I think there are reasons for optimism. As many and as difficult to see or believe than they were as they were in the 1930s. A huge wealth creating potential is available for socio-political shaping. The question is whether without a war, our societies can match the boldness, the imagination of those that turned the technological threat of the 1930s into the post-war golden age. Now, turning the current threat into a positive sum game is the challenge of our time. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Carlotta. I'm going to turn now to Russell, and I think um, your second last slide was particularly interesting in the context of um, developing countries, which is what Russell is going to speak to, um, this question of whether you have both manufacturing jobs, but then perhaps more jobs and better employment in the other areas of trade um, in government and services will be interesting, because I think a lot of the work has focused so far on, on manufacturing in terms of industrial policy. Um, just to introduce Russell quickly, um, we're very happy to also have Russell back. Uh, Russell uh, used to be based with ODI, um, also in the team working on the new climate economy. He's now principal economist uh, with the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, based here in London as well. Um, prior to that, uh, he was a senior economic advisor for the Global Green Growth Institute, uh, where he was based in Ethiopia, advising um, the government around sustainable development issues. Uh, including integration um, into their 2015 through 2020 National Development Plan. And he's also worked uh, for the UK government as an economist. Uh, Russell, we really look forward to your reflections uh, on the book and also uh, on some of the work that you've done um, on these issues with a focus on developing countries. Great. Well, thanks, Sheila. Um, and thanks to ODI for putting on this event and inviting me back so soon. It's only been around uh, six weeks since I left, so it's great to be back. <laughs> I, was, I should also say that I was probably one of the first in line for the book, actually. 
because I was in Waterstones asking, uh, you know, where it was day in, day out. So, uh, you know, so I was one of the early movers on, on this. Um, you know, um, I'm going to focus on developing countries where, by and large, the definition of Western capitalism has not really taken form um, in the ways that we've heard Michael and Carlotta describe it, if at, if at all. And um, there is, of course, and Michael touched on this, there are very strong links between what's happening in Western economies and what's happening in developing developing countries. Three that stand out are aid flows, um, global tr global trade, and of course collaboration around trans transboundary issues such as migration and climate change. Um, I'm going to draw today in my remarks, not from work I'm doing at EBRD, but from work I was doing just before, just before at ODI, um, which looked at um, the economic, social and environmental issues in low-income countries. And this was done in collaboration with a programme here at ODI called the Supporting, Supporting Economic Transformation, whose role is to look at um, how countries can, uh, can address some of these issues. Um, let me start with a qualification before I, before I dive in, given the fact I've only got 10 minutes to cover such large terrain. Um, there are a huge variations in, in developing countries. I'm going to be drawing on the report which focused on sub-Saharan Africa. There's an element of grouping countries together, which is really imperfect. Um, even the use of the term sub-Saharan Africa has its imperfections. So if you will indulge me a bit um, to have some of these groupings in, in what I say and perhaps in some of the discussion, we can get into the into the country-specific examples. Um, so the first point I want to make, and to start off on a positive note, is that there has been really significant development progress across, across developing countries and in sub-Saharan Africa over the, last, over the last 20 years. Actually, quite extraordinary. Um, what this graph shows is that actually in 2010, in real, real per capita GDP um, real per capita GDP in sub-Saharan Africa reached a new peak that had not been reached since 1974. Um, and most of this growth occurred during the 2000s. Between 2001 and 2014, growth rates were at around 5%, and that's commonly known as the African, African growth miracle. Um, and there's a number of reasons for this, um, particularly improvement in, in kind of policy fundamentals. This has, also been, this has also been accompanied by you know, hefty declines in poverty, an, an equivalent, you know, a very impressive fall, fall in poverty. And um, extreme poverty, which is the blue line on this graph through time, basically mir mirrors what's happened to growth. It fell from around 60%. Um, which, which it kind of stagnated in the 90s to around 40% um, in, in the present day. But I think here, it's, despite, despite this progress, there's a number of challenges. Um, in, the same, in the same way that Michael, I think, gave a great overview of some of the challenges we're facing in, in Western economies, I think there's similar, there's similar challenges here. So let me just very quickly run, run through them. I think they're well known to anyone who works at ODI, some of these challenges, but let me just, let me just quickly run through them. First off, this, this growth and countries in develop, developing countries, and especially those in sub-Saharan Africa, are vulnerable to external shocks. And global, the global falls in commodity prices seen over the last couple of years had huge implications for government budgets and welfare, in, in, certainly in African, African countries. Um, so that, that is something that needs addressing. They're also lagging behind on a number of development indicators. Despite this progress, there's a huge way to, way to go. And actually, if we look at what the scale of the challenge, and especially how they relate to the sustainable development goals, it really is a massive challenge that we need, we need focus on. And actually, just to highlight, highlight this challenge and how numbers can, can slightly mask some of these issues, the, the 
the number of people actually in extreme poverty grew by 100 million between 1990 and, um, and 2012. So despite the overall share falling because of population growth, the actual number of people um, increased. There is, of course, growing, growing climate risk. Michael touched on this. Um, and sub-Saharan Africa is already warming faster than the, glo than the global average, and this is expected to continue as far as we can understand it from climate modelling. This is not, of course, the only environmental issues faced across the continent, and biodiversity and water pollution and air pollution are major issues that need, that need addressing. And as we speak now, there are food security crises in a number, of, a number of African countries, which are not really reported in Western press at all, that are really, really are pressing um, for, for global policymakers. Perhaps, the, perhaps one of the largest challenges relates to, and Carlotta, you just touched on this, is really how to provide jobs and basic services for a growing, a growing young and urbanized population. So population growth will double between, between now and 2050 from 1 billion to 2 billion in sub-Saharan Africa. 43% of the population in sub-Saharan Africa is below the age of 14. This presents a huge challenge for policymakers in terms of where will the jobs come from and where will the services come from. So I want to just say my second point, really, if my first point was there's been significant gains and there's been challenges, but challenges remain, the second is that new strategies are needed and a focus on economic transformation and the understanding of economic history, which Carlotta's very, very well touched on, is important to shape the new directions to address these challenges. Um, economic transformation um, is really about the process of improve, improving productivity in the economy as a whole by shifting um, labour from less productive, less productive sectors to more productive sectors. This is typically agriculture to, um, to manufacturing at early stages, um, but also rapid productivity growth within sectors. Now, this graph, which you might not be able to see, and I, I, I did want to include it just because I can imagine how much effort went into producing it, basically gives the, 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 stylized, the stylized facts of what, what happens through time. And I think it complements what Carlotta's shown through time in terms of understanding how technological revolutions um, happen. The stylized facts are basically, and this shows employment and value add through time, um, split by agriculture, manufacturing and services, that essentially you start from a point where you've got a large part of your population in agriculture, um, and then through time, through time this, this share declines, um, where there's an increase in manufacturing, which rises, then peaks at around 30%, and that 30% is seen actually in, in quite a lot of cases, then falls while services increase. That's, that's the kind of stylized facts as we understand them. Of course, there's huge variations in, in between. Um, so I think the, the, the question is for developing countries is, well, what will be the same and what will be different relative to this historical pattern? And actually, I re I, I'd read... Um, a few days ago that, um, the about the rediscovery of, rediscovery of history by economists. And, um, and certainly from our work, I mean, I've worked in Ethiopia, we've in the new climate economy and with ODI, we worked in Uganda. The policymakers there were extremely fascinated about understanding what, what really could be learned for developing countries and their own countries from the historical pattern of development. And actually that's something I think to complement what you said, Michael, around what you know, what's the role of economics and, and policy making, actually, I think providing that type of advice to policymakers in a really intelligent way is a, is a key thing. Um, now, where is Africa now relative to that historical pattern? Well, what we've basically seen 
is a, a small amount of transformation, but nothing, nothing that you could describe as, as major through time. So there's been some shifts in, in employment and GDP shares away from agriculture, very small, but it hasn't really followed the historical pattern into manufacturing, which is actually declining in sub-Saharan Africa, where the biggest growth ha has occurred um, or the biggest shifts has been towards services. So it's not really follow following the atypical pattern. And again, there's a lot in this. There's a lot of country variation, but this is the, this is the broad trend. Um, the key, so the key missing element, really, when compared to the historical pattern, is the, is the rise in manufacturing, which we've not seen. And there's a hell of a lot of policy effort to try and stimulate um, manufacturing growth in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so there's... What, what basically underpins this is there is huge scope for improvement, actually. And when you look at the productivity levels within, um, within sectors and between sectors, there is huge scope for improvement. And this huge scope really offers the opportunity um, for, for the countries that we're talking about to, to improve. Now, my third point, really, is that the pattern of economic transformation will define the shape, the, the, how inclusive and how green it can be. Um, and again, picking up on something that you mentioned, Carlotta, around these things need to be synergistic to really, to really drive this forward, I think is, exact, is exactly right. Clearly, economic transformation will put demands on natural capital. And historically, that's really relied on a lot on fossil fuels and, and um, high amounts of consumption and production. Um, and if, if future directions of growth are really around services and the use of ICT, this, of course, will be... Um, will consume less less resources than than the historical pattern. So that, but it also depends on things like um, income levels, consumer preferences, and again, Carlotta, you you described a, in the book, I think, I don't it, around a new way of life, a green way of life. Well, that those consumer um, that consumer demand will also influence the shape of of demand for energy and resources. Um, the exact shape will, of course, also um, influence the the extent it can be called inclusive. Um, when you look at this historical pattern in sub-Saharan Africa, um, manufacturing and construction has tended to be more inclusive than services um, and services and mining, which is actually a large part of um, what has driven growth. And the extent to that the extent that continues will be an open question. But certainly, go what's happened previously is is the growth in sub-Saharan Africa has not been as inclusive as one might expect and certainly want. So in, this, in, in the report that I mentioned that, that these remarks are drawn from, we, we focused on five areas um, as, as, as focus going forward to, um, to think about inclusive, sustainable growth. The first was a continued fo focus on the basics. I mean, it almost sounds glib when you say it, the continued focus on the basics, but there really, there really is a long way to go on a lot of the, the core things that need to, need to happen that will underpin growth in any direction. And then we focus on four things. So improving agriculture and land use as a foundation for economic transformation. This is also seen in the historic pattern. Huge amounts of investment and improvement in productivity in agriculture is a precursor for, for prosperity um, going forward. Diversification into manufacturing and other high productivity modern sectors. That's an open question about that direction in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's, of course, very important and policymakers policy need to devote effort to it. Managing the process of urbanisation is also, is also absolutely key. And the, the urban population of sub-Saharan Africa will imp increase by 800 million people by 2050, which is about half of the um, increase that we will see going forward. That's a huge challenge for policymakers in terms of delivering infrastructure. 
and also fostering a modern energy transition. The, the penetration of um, modern energy and energy access in sub-Saharan Africa is, is um, a scandal and needs, and needs improving. And, and again, there's a lot of, lot of policy effort that, uh, that is directed towards that, including at ODI and by your team, Sheila. So I don't have time to go through these all in de detail. So let me just cut, touch on a couple of, just a couple of things. Some things that I think will make it easier to follow the types of directions that you, you discussed, Carlotta, and some things that might make it harder and challenges that policymakers will need to address. So some things that will make it easier. Of course, because a lot of the infrastructure is not in place in these countries, there is an opportunity for leapfrogging. And we see that that is missing out the high, the high carbon growth and the high carbon infrastructure that we've seen previously. There's a great example in Tanzania and Kenya of the banking um, of banking uh, app called M-Pesa, which has just leapfrogged the ability of modern banking and the, the need for the infrastructure around it. And basically, modern banking is happening on a mobile phone. And perhaps, you know, examples like that can offer inspiration in other areas. We've also seen um, in Ethiopia a strong push for um, eco-industrial parks, where and there's a their, their flagship eco-industrial park is in Hawassa, and that has been relatively successful about trying to address these issues, on certainly on a smaller scale, to learn some lessons about taking that um, on a larger scale. The falling cost of renewables also offers a, another great opportunity. At, at, no other at no other time in history have, has renewables, of course, been this cheap, and therefore it offers a great opportunity in these countries to, pro to, um, to provide renewable energy and clean energy. But there are also some things that, are, that will make this harder, I think. And, if, and I think one of these is the need to provide this basic infrastructure so countries do not get left behind. And if we believe that future directions of global growth will rely on um, ICT and, um, and, and things allied to that, then there's a need to provide the basic infrastructure to access those routes to growth. And this, this graph basically shows where are developing countries relative to it relative to advanced countries in terms of their access to the internet. And as you would expect, most, most sub-Saharan African countries are at a really low level of penetration. And of course, this is something that should be a priority for policymakers to make sure that countries are not left behind in having access um, to some of the routes to global, global growth. Um, let, me just, let me finish by just saying, actually, what's needed in terms of what things can unlock some of these opportunities well, it's political, uh, it's political commitment, it's effective policy design, and to agree with you, Michael, pluralist, pluralist approach to economics, but I would actually extend it beyond economics. And what we've heard from you, Carlotta, today is a compelling case for any economist to study their history very well before, uh, um, before going about policy design and policy advice. Um, let, me just, let me just touch on one of these things to end, and that's about the role of um, what makes good policy design. And actually, there is a team here at ODI who, um, entitled Doing Development Differently, whose sole focus and job is about what have been the features of successful policy design through time. Um, and what comes out is, of course, political commitment around whatever, whatever policy direction you need, but also that, that policy design should be focused, iterative, and adaptive through time. And I think there's a lot to we can learn from history around history as well in terms of what has been successful and what has not been successful in some of the things that you discussed, Carlotta. Carlotta. So um, thank you again uh, to you, Sheila and team, and uh, I hope we, have a, hope we have a great discussion.
great. Thanks so much, everyone. So we'll open it up to uh, questions for discussion now. Um, and also, hopefully, the panelists can reflect on each other's remarks um, also during their responses. Um, we'll take uh, questions maybe in groups of three. And for those online, I have um, the iPad in front of me. So if you want to send through questions now, um, we'll hopefully be able to put those to the panel as well. Um, so just raise your hand if you have a question to ask. And if you could just um, introduce yourself, your name and your affiliation, that would be great. Um, so we'll start over there with Nick and then the gentleman in the gray sweater and then the gentleman in the front row. Um, great. Hi there. Um, Nick Godfrey. I'm um, with New Climate Economy. work very closely with Michael and, and, and Russell um, over the last few years. And I also look after our cities program. I had two, two questions, really. I hope you don't mind. Um, Carlotta, Michael, uh, you know, it's a fantastic book. One question is, you know, I'm a macroeconomist by training, and I studied undergraduate economics, appallingly taught. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, it was literally nuts and bolts economic modeling, models. You know, there was a total absence of economic history. And then I moved on to looking at development economics, an absolute transformation because you're actually looking at economic history. I guess my question is, what do we do to fix the economics profession? Because ultimately, what I totally buy into your argument, but ultimately it cannot be tackled with at the heart of our economic system is the way that economic is taught. Second question is just your point about urbanization. Um, what we found in our work is this model of um, urban sprawl, particularly in the US, which is the most um, sprawled um, country in the world, it seems to, to, to have a profound impact on inequality, actually, as well, which is not necessarily well understood. And it has a profound impact on environmental performance. And I guess, Carlotta, I just wanted to get your view on how do we start to shift that model and transform that model away from um, something which is more economically, socially, and environmentally productive? Hi, uh, my name is Avi Bram. I'm an economist at DFID. Um, thank you all for very interesting talks there. Uh, my question was for Carlotta. Um, I was really just interested in getting your reaction to kind of Paul Mason's thesis in post-capitalism. He, he sort of follows you in his economic history analysis of these long cycles, the upswings, downswings from new technologies and their deployment and so on. Um, but as you probably know, he's got a very different view on this current cycle where he believes that the nature of IT is so fundamentally different to all the technology we've had before, the kind of zero marginal costs basically that you can now, can now produce at zero marginal cost and this essentially undermines the basis of capitalism. So um, instead of this new upswing being based on sort of state direction, uh, inspiring or coordinating private enterprise uh, towards better use of these technologies, actually the role of private enterprise at all will sort of inevitably fade away, if you like, or, or at least for the sort of capitalist private enterprise, the corporations that we've been used to. So um, <laughs> a bit long-winded, but I hope you can uh, reflect on those, please. Great. Thank you. If you just pass the microphone forward. Thank you. <clears throat> My name is uh, Sarhi Kiral, and I'm actually from Ukraine. I'm a member of parliament, so I'm 
a policymaker as you and I really appreciate uh, EBRD and your support you provide to to my country which is makes you probably the largest investor in uh, infrastructure and the basic infrastructure you're talking about uh, I really appreciate your presentations uh, uh, and my question uh, would be related to uh, to Eastern Europe and and the countries of the post socialist bloc which which in fact uh, hasn't yet made any significant progress in, in building the capitalism which you are now trying to rethink, yeah. uh, which you would call a developing countries or countries in transition. But we have always been looking at uh, the example of the West, of the free world, and trying to take uh, note and take those patterns and adapt it to the situation in, in Ukraine, in our country. Uh, it hasn't been really successful um, and my opinion, one of the reasons is because of the very uh, weak state as we have. I mean, the lack of rule of law and lack of uh, strong institutions. So I was wondering what would be your advice, uh, but also for the policy makers in European Union, you know, United States, uh, where we uh, are very much dependent right now, in particular, where we are fighting a war with Russia, uh, and we are trying at the same time to, to do the necessary reforms and, and build a successful um, democratic rule of law-based uh, state. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for those questions. Um, in the interest of time, if we can just go across um, the panelists, if you could each um, decide sort of what parts of those questions you want to answer around how we fix the economics profession, uh, the implications for urbanization, um, the issue of, of um, IT, um, ICT and technologies and, and the role of the state, and then lastly around this issue of the question of the role of, of the implications for countries and policymakers in perhaps weaker states. Uh, we have 10 minutes, well, eight minutes left, so we'll try to go through these questions. Cool. But what I would suggest is because we started a bit late, if everyone's happy, we'll run about 10 minutes over. If the panelists are also okay with that, then we can do one more round of questions. And we have coffee and tea outside, so you can continue the conversation um, after that. Goodness. Sorry, I wasn't very good at stopping people from speaking because it was too interesting. <laughs> well, uh, the suburban sprawl is a huge problem. I, I imagine that, I mean, the U.S. has the huge, a much bigger problem than Europe because there they went much further, especially they have so much land, you know, so it was crazy. So I think maybe one of the things to do in the U.S. is actually to turn all those suburban things into into more active, not just sleeping places, but, but to have wealth creation there in order to be able to keep, I don't know, it's, it's a huge problem. I'd be frightened to have, I wouldn't want to be the person in charge of doing this uh, because that's the problem. Each technological revolution leaves a huge legacy. We're le dealing with consumerism, with waste, with all that, and with suburbia. So how do we face one or the other? Each one has to be faced differently, taking advantage of this. And I think I'd better answer the one that's really directed to me, which is Paul's um, view of post-capitalism. Okay. Uh, I actually do think that many of the things that Paul sees as post-capitalism are part of this new thing. I think somebody in the 30s who had been told that we would have a welfare state, they would have said it's post-capitalism. 
In fact, uh, the Marxists changed the name to state something capitalism. I mean, they, they sort of thought it was a huge change because the state was taking a role that was much bigger. So I think because society will take a role that's much bigger, I think maybe what we will get is the sharing economy, the, all those things to be a complement to the things that will have to be in big companies, which, you know, like all the, you know, the Googles and the Teslas and all these guys, even if they have zero marginal cost, they are working as huge corporations. So we can have a dual economy where we have the high productivity, um, big corporations, competitive across the world. And then we have community level, very strong strategy, local strategy, local governments that would be create, would favor a much more socially uh, active society, sharing and doing all these wonderful things that would make the quality of life locally much better. I doubt that we're going to post-capitalism. I think the strength of capitalism is still enormous, and I really, I wish we could say there is something really lovely ahead. I don't think there is. I mean, what I've said, it sounds like lovely, but it's not as lovely as I think Paul uh, looks ahead to. So I do think private capitalism will continue, but there will be this combination which will make it different and maybe better. Michael, you want to respond to okay. some of the well, questions? Just, just coming back, one of, one of the things that, that Paul Mason um, is famous for saying, which I think everybody has realised was wrong, um, it, it was about the sharing, the so-called sharing economy and the gig economy. And what we've learnt in the short period since the publication of Paul Mason's book is that this is a very typically capitalist formation in which resources are... are um, capital resources are mobilised and then labour is exploited as far as it's possible for capitalism uh, to do it. And the sharing economy doesn't look uh, nearly so nice as, as it's made out in, in, in his book for very obvious formation, capital formation reasons. And, and what capitalists are good at is mobilising um, uh, ideas and capital. Uber is a very, very interesting phenomenon because Uber is not using... It's always thought of as a technology company. It's not a technology company. The technologies of Uber are, are, have been pre-invented by others and they've just applied them with a business... It's a business model innovation. And the business model... Is is classic capitalist business model, which is to find workers as cheaply as possible and pay them uh, the absolute minimum and put all the risks of their employment onto them. Um, Uber is the equivalent of the dockers of the 90, of the dock work in the 1930s, in which um, uh, in which you have uh, at least in those days you get a day's work when you stand at the dock and and so on. And now you can get an hour's work here or there in the new flexible economy. So I think we should be very careful about thinking that capitalism is easily undermined by technology. The great thing about capitalism, if you're a capitalist, um, is how uh, easy it is or how flexible capitalist forms can be in taking technolo new technologies and, and so on. That doesn't mean that there aren't interesting things um, happening out uh, uh, within the economy. But I, I think this is... And automation is, is comparable. Automation will destroy jobs, but it will also create huge amounts of value, which will then need to be recirculated in the economy to create new jobs. And we don't have any... There is no a priori reason why uh, automation of itself, these new technologies, should lead to some dramatic reduction in the number of available jobs. It depends on how the incomes are recirculated. And if the income remains within the holders of capital and it's not recirculating the economy, then you could certainly get that. But if it's re And this is where the state becomes so important. Um, and this then brings us to the question of, of Ukraine. I really 
I mean, I'd love to hear your take on all of this, but the point that you make, which is about weak state and weak institutions, does seem to me to be critical in this. In the period of, uh, of uh, installation and, and the, the creative destruction period, um, you, uh, capitalist firms and financial markets will explode, and if the conditions are right, can generate lots of uh, 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 growth. In the period of deployment, um, you need the state, and the state has to provide this direction. And that does need strong and legitimate institutions. And where you have weak states and weak institutions, it's hard to do that. Now, we have, interestingly, in the UK, a kind of um, a, a, another version of that, which is weak regional institutions. So we have a strong, relatively strong national state, but we have very weak regional institutions, subnational institutions. Unlike most developed economies, which have which have stronger, much stronger institutions at subnational level. And my suspicion is that for a lot of economic policy, particularly in matching demand and supply, providing infrastructure, skills, uh, what we would now call industrial strategy, needs a lower level of government. A national, uh, 50 million, 55, 70, 60 million people is too large. And most other countries that have reasonably successful um, intermediating state institutions and economic policy do it at a much lower level. Um, obviously, where there's weaker national institutions, you've got a double problem. And you've obviously had, you know, in Eastern Europe, you've had sort of kleptocratic government, which has, which has, which has allowed huge amounts of capital to be expropriated and so on. I don't, I don't, don't know enough about economies in transition to be able to offer any advice, but certainly I would absolutely accept that the role of public institutions is absolutely critical in, in this. And, and this is why a lot of our book... Carlotta's work suggests that you need a much more active state in this period in order to gather all the conditions together and drive them in a direction, and that then enables capitalists to make money out of it, but they're not going to do so uh, or on their own. I'll take Nick's other point about teaching economics. This is a problem. Um, so we have a self-reinforcing process within the profession of economics in which in order to become a top economist, you have to publish in the journals, which are edited by and have referees from the orthodoxy. It then becomes very difficult to uh, to rise within the profession as a, as a non-orthodox economist. Um, however, economics is not completely immune to evidence. And one of the things that's happened over the last 10 years, it's largely immune to evidence, actually. It's an extraordinary science, social science, in the sense that it's paid much, much less attention, just structurally, to the to, to the evidence base, and it's uh, to facts actually, and to economic history, and it's been much more interested in the theoretical elegance of its. And because most, many, many economists are failed mathematicians, <laughs> otherwise known as applied mathematicians, people who like maths, it's gone for elegance over over science actually, over the relationship between the evidence base and and the theory, um, and so economics has a kind of structural uh, problem in it, but it is. Now, there is now uh, much more criticism of economics, and economists are beginning to note this themselves. And Andy Haldane, the chief economist of the Bank of England, speech the other day in which he you know, noted that economics has a, serious, uh, has a serious problem, is beginning to make an inroad. And the interesting thing is that the students have rebelled. So we've now got um, uh, um, rebellious students in various universities who are saying that the syllabus we've been taught is not adequate. We want to know actually about the real economy. Started in Manchester with the post-crash economics and so on. So there's a bit of movement going on there. And the field of economics does have lots of heterodox economists in it. It's not like we don't know what to think about this. There's a lot of good interesting economics out there, but it'll take a while before that becomes a new orthodoxy. But that was true of Keynesianism too. A lot of economists were absolutely hooked on the kind of classical economics that prevailed in the 1930s, and it took a while. 
the interesting thing, of course, is we haven't had the Keynes figure who kind of brings it all together. And if you look at all the heterodox economists, there isn't anybody who's kind of bringing it all together and is acting as the new kind of lodestar. Of an, uh, uh, but that may still happen. Carlotta still has time <laughs> to be that person, if only. Can I clarify just one thing about the collaborative, I mean, about the sharing economy. I don't think that Uber deserves that name. They used it, but it's not. I think there is a collaborative economy, which is very different, and that's what I'm calling the sharing economy that will coexist. So just in case, I definitely that's, think Uber is, has to be controlled and all that. It's not. Mm -hmm. Russell, do you want to react to any of their questions? Yeah. Great. Well, just picking up just picking up what my colleague from Ukraine has said and just building on what Michael said. In, in, in our previous work at the New Climate Economy, prior to going to try and give advice to developing countries, which is fraught with difficulties, we started to say, well, what features are present in effective policy reform? One of which is state capacity. And that comes out every time there has been successful policy reform is you have a strong state to deliver it. And so that's so agreed. And I don't, and I don't think that's disputed in the, in, in the literature. A few other things that are always, always seem to be present. And again, the team at ODI here, I think, are, uh, are excellent in terms of collecting this evidence and, and more people, you know, it needs to get out there and more people need to read it. So a few other factors. Firstly, and I mentioned this before, is political commitment around, around whatever the direction of change is. The second is consensus around whatever the direction of change is. If you have a lack of consensus, it tends to make it difficult to actually move forward on whatever the specific issue is. And there's, of course, lots of examples of that climate change being, being one of them. And I, but I think luckily with climate change over the last few years, there's been a growing consensus around that there needs to be action. Third is coalitions and coalitions of actors that can help build that consensus. And um, it's not enough just for one group in society to want something. The more groups of society that want, that want a specific direction, the easier it is to to drive through policy reform, um, and then and then lastly, I think it's focused policy. It's focused policy design that is reactive to changes and understanding as you begin to implement. And again, I think you see there's some really great examples of that across the developing world, where where the more focused something is, and the more and 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 the more it reacts to real-time information, the more effective it is. Great. Um, we're about five minutes over, so I'll just take a couple more questions for those of you who can stay um, with us. So um, the gentleman in the front row first, um, the woman in the front row here, and then Epec in the second row. Um, and then if you can all respond quickly to these questions, and then we'll um, break for coffee and tea. Andrew Ross from Global Garden. It's a question for Michael, but also following Russell's remarks. Um, the finance market itself is fully aware of these facts and in particular the insurance industry looking at climate change and its impact on their liabilities now in this market green bonds are booming they cannot find investable projects at scale that have got a reliable return on investment from a creditworthy issuer and you've got the sheer example of cities perfectly capable of issuing municipal green bonds. Now, in this country, we have the National Infrastructure Commission, which is taking evidence from the Natural Capital Committee and applying natural capital economics to value these externalities. 
as part of the infrastructure investment. Why isn't that a cause of optimism? Great. Um, if you can pass the microphone along to the woman in purple jumper. Great. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for all your contributions. It's I'm Valerie Amato. I'm an independent advisor um, advising academia, businesses, and international NGOs on how they can work together for a better world. Um, I have uh, um, some questions about thinking and rethinking because uh, it seems that our old models of thinking are completely out of date. Uh, we need major reform in terms of education and inviting people to work together. Um, and so I'm wondering uh, what the panel thinks on the relevance of system thinking in accelerating the implementation of this transformative agenda. Right, if you can pass it just right behind you. Uh, thank you very much. This is Ipek Gensha from um, the Climate and Energy team, and I've also been working with Michael and uh, Russell on uh, the new climate economy. I have a question about um, the power and politics side of what you've been discussing. Um, you've all referred to it in some form, and um, Michael was involved in uh, the sort of political process in the lead up to the Paris Agreement where one of the things that he discussed with the team was how the different stakeholders came together, whether that was NGOs, academics, businesses, governments, um, to, to lead to this major achievement. Um, how can we think about the economic transition or the thinking transition that we need to achieve in the same way? How can we make sure that the people um, who are disappointed with some of the political changes, some of the economic um, realities of today, who are motivated to to change the thinking can come together in a um, sort of fertile way uh, to, to make sure that they are behind uh, the governments and the policymakers who are trying to um, to to shift the the next few decades in the right direction, so to speak. Great, thank you so much. If you don't mind, Russell, I'll start with you, and we'll work our way the other direction this time. Um, and thanks all of you for staying. Yeah, um, just well to pick up on the systems the systems thinking point. We were, we were asked in, in the new climate economy by the, the Ministry of Finance in, in the government of Uganda uh, to advise on the issues of su sustainable and inclusive growth. They said, Our long we have a long-term vision. Um, can, you, you know, can you provide evidence that inclusive, inclusivity and sustainability actually make sense for our, for our economy? And, and it dawned on me during this advice what types of questions you need to you need to develop an answer to to be able to convince someone and what types of evidence you might need to collect to, to do it. So we, we went simply with the answers to the, these questions. Is this path good for growth and jobs? Because that was the key political pressure in that country and therefore we needed to provide an answer to that question. How much is this going to cost? Um, and what exactly needs to be done in terms, of, in terms of policies and is it politically palatable or not? Those were, those were the fundamental questions that we were looking to address. Now, when you get down into how am I going to provide the evidence of this, it really, it really did require an, a number of different lines of thought to, to, to actually do this. And it was very difficult in practice, actually. So picking up on looking out 30, 40 years and what this might do to GDP growth and, and the sources of this, it was very difficult to try and um, input in the models that we were using. And they were predominantly models um, that had been developed over a number of years in, by the government of Uganda to try and think about technology in the context of a macroeconomic model, for example. Very difficult. Um, that work, which is available, publicly available, tried to also take into account the role of economic geography 
and Michael, I don't think that's something that you mentioned in, in your remarks, and, and it really builds on, on work by um, Krugman and Tony Venables, which says, how, you know, how, does, how does economic activity play out through space? And that was actually very important in, in this context, about saying, well, how regionally will, will development happen and what types of issues do we, do we need to think about? So I think this system's thinking is very difficult when in practice to, to do, and, and we need to develop um, models and methods that are actually quite practical for policymakers to use. Great. Thanks, Russell. Michael? Um, so systems thinking, yes, uh, I think there's a lot under that heading. Um, so uh, we definitely need to be more um, uh, conscious of the way systems uh, work. Um, and in, in a sense, underpinning the book is is a sense of capitalism as a, a, as a system and not simply as a set of equations. Um, and understanding the way systems work, and systems are different. One of the things that uh, is very striking is that different economies, different institutional forms um, result in different kinds of outcomes. And you've really got to understand the kinds of institutions, the kind of firms, the kinds of markets, uh, and so on, that generate different uh, kinds of outcomes. Um, I think the finance markets are a source of optimism. Um, the, the, um, I mean, so far, green. This is a wider conversation. Sort of, so far, the green bond market has been has been identifying things that probably might have been financed anyway. It's, it's how far, how far it's generating, it's generating funds that are going into new things. But it is definitely shifting perceptions in that market. And you're absolutely right that there's a shortage of fundable projects. And this is one of the major efforts in the whole world of global energy infrastructure, as you know, which is to try and get bankable projects in places that uh, that need them. But I do think that the way in which the finance sector has responded on climate change is a source of optimism. Um, however, the rest of the finance sector is still creating bubbles and is still generating huge amounts of, um, of transaction, uh, a lot of transactions which don't feed the, the real economy. And the problem of investing of the finance sector not investing in the in the rest of the economy remains. I think I think you're right that there is optimism in its particular response to climate change. Well, insurance has got the problem. Well, insurance and in, the insurance markets uh, have internalised the problem because it's their problem, yeah. and so insurance market the insurance companies are, have, are the ones at the at the at the frontier of this because they are well aware that they have multiple risks. They have risks um, of climate impacts affecting uh, their uh, the things they're insurance, the buildings they're insurance, the cities they're insuring. They also have risks in their own investments, which are very heavily in property. So they are, uh, and so on. So they are uh, they are uh, they, they are increasingly conscious. So I, I would agree with you on that. Um, on power and politics, in fact, you ask the the toughest question, of course, and the question that we should now really spend another couple of hours discussing. Um, there was a moment during the Occupy protests post uh, the crash when and uh, in, the, in, in events in certain countries where it looked like the reaction to the, the crisis of the economy politically would be, a crisis, would be a political reaction that turned left. It was a very short moment and it was one of the ba most badly organised um, uh, uh, resistance uh, kind of oppositional movements that, that, that there has been in the post-war period. It was a terrible, terrible missed opportunity for a whole variety of reasons. And of course since then the dominant reaction has been right-wing. So Brexit um, is not in itself a right-wing vote, but it is clearly interpretable in that form, and some of the xenophobia and other things that emerged in that campaign uh, appear to be that kind, and certainly it looks like an inward-looking, not an outward-looking thing. Trump is, is definitely uh, a reactionary kind of politics. Um, uh, and so these things are possible, as we know from the 1930s, which saw very, very strong reactions of both left and right. In the 1930s, you had huge movements towards the left as well as towards the right. So this is a very difficult moment. 
Don't be about, uh, under any doubt, however, that, the, that Brexit and Trump are reactions to the same set of facts and the same economic conditions. And it's one of the failures of the left to kind of talk about Brexit and Trump as if they are, they are basically responding to um, to kind of rightward move. They're a right-wing political reaction to a set of conditions which people on the left should be very, very concerned about. The stagnation of wages over 40 years in the US, over the last 15 in the UK, are the kinds of, of for people on the bottom half of the, the income distribution, are things that people on the left and progressive politics should absolutely be concerned about. But you can react to them in different ways. Um, the answer is, uh, I, I don't know any more than, uh, than, than you do, um, but I do think that it's critical to... to mobilize around a set of alternative ideas of what the future could be like. The, the right-wing prospectus is very narrow, um, and it will almost certainly fail. It's very hard to see how either Brexit as a kind of response or Trump, with his very confused economic policies, uh, are likely to succeed. And that means that the development of an alternative set of economic ideas with, a, with an alternative set of actors around them, um, both in civil society and in business, um, is really important. And that process we have to develop some consensus. And the difficulty is developing consensus about radical ideas it tends to be harder than developing about moderate ideas. It's harder to get consensus around the kind of radical things that now need to happen. Particularly in the business community, you get kind of people just about willing to see that something should be done, um, but it's hard to do, it's much harder to do it. Um, but that is the task now, and it is the task for for the reconstruction when the current moments fail. And I think it's very likely that politically the current um, uh, expressions of political um, uh, of the reaction to the to this moment on the right wing of politics will succeed. Um, so we have to be ready. But it's a long term process, and it consists of both of ideas and of coalition building. Great, thanks, Michael. We're at um, just past a quarter past, so if I can very ask quickly. Carlotta to give a very quick last very brief, reaction. Very brief. I'll just pick up on all those things. The, I don't think it's possible to have a successful transition. That's not a positive sum game between business and society. We've got to find a way that will be good for business and good for people, and not just in one country or in five countries, but globally. So first of all, we need that. And what does that mean? We need to build a new coalition, which is a coalition that includes business, the insurance people, the circular economy people, and as many business uh, parts of society can understand. We need the politicians understanding precisely the things that are happening that are very serious. We need to do a sort of new covenant, like, like the social democracy covenant was. We've got to invent a new one that fits. So we have to get the labor unions that are interested in jobs, and we have to make sure that they understand that this is the way to get jobs. And of course, the Greens on board. And the, so we need a very wide coalition. And if we don't get that, we're not getting the change. And that means also globally countries, and it's a very complex process, but we've got to be able to, to present it in a way that it can be bought by both business and society and by politicians, and I hope we get some leaders like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Beveridge and people like that. We need not just acad uh, academic economists that will do it, but fantastic politicians, which we don't have, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you all very much. It was a fascinating talk. Do you have some books? I, I've got some books here. Okay, Michael so, has some books, so there'll be some outside. Which are available at, dis, at a discounted price, so if anybody um, wants one. And look forward to continuing the conversation over coffee and in um, many years to come so that we build this consensus and all of these new coalitions that are needed. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.